0: Uh, Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, John. Appreciate you guys. Um, All right. Um, So we are in this actually week five uh, when it comes to uh, second Peter. I mean, it's going to take me a minute to get used to looking at you people when I'm talking. So um, instead of just staring at a screen, I'm uh, (laughs) um, anyways. All right. So I've got I've got a question. Has anyone ever purposefully giving you false information to get you to do something wrong or, or do something that uh, to, to mislead you on, on person. I was going to use last night I went uh, on a little scooter ride with Zach and Ben and thought it was going to be a nice leisurely stroll and it, and it wasn't. Um, felt a little misled but no, they, they didn't do that on purpose. I'm just out of shape. And so, you know, that's just what happens. Um, one thing that I thought of, because uh, I, I was racking my brain, has this happened to me before? And I couldn't I couldn't think of anything in particular that was like, you know, somebody maliciously did this thing or or whatever. And my my son right now is really into, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, oh, yeah, Lightning McQueen. All right, Are you guys familiar with Lightning McQueen? And there's one character named Chick Hicks, who's kind of like the, the bad guy, if you will, who's constantly... Uh, you know switching the sign on the road so someone takes a wrong turn or something like that and that's kind of what I was thinking of and and I was just I was racking my brain and then I remembered um I don't know I, I've got kids there's been a few times you know where you'll see the color green and I'll be like no that's not green that's blue you know and then I'm like no and I've always kind of tried to get uh Henry to believe me when I lied to him but it just hasn't happened yet Um but one thing though in particular that I remembered last night I texted my cousin and his oldest son Wyatt uh, and and Will, their their other the other boy, uh, they have a good friend named Zach Hudson. But when he first met Wyatt, he said, "I don't want you to call me Uncle Zach. I want you to call me Uncle Wadsworth." Um, and so, forever, for years, and to this day, they still call him Uncle Wadsworth. Why? I don't know. Uh, but he purposefully gave him a lie, and it stuck. And so he's Uncle Wadsworth now instead of Uncle Zach, which is kind of kind of cool. As I was racking my brain, though, trying to come up with, like, a good um, idea or a way that that's happened, I actually could only think of times where that's happened in the church um, where I felt like I was manipulated or a passage of Scripture was twisted in one way, which is fitting because today actually is going to be a uh, major um, passage against false teachers. And so I wanted to share one story that it's kind of funny and kind of sad at the same time. And that is when I was in in junior high, uh my youth pastor he he used this passage in in uh in second uh, Corinthians, or sorry, first Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, there's so many kids here, it's awesome. I love it. Uh so anyways, uh first Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1, the the King James version of it says this. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. All right? So so that was the passage that my youth pastor decided I'm going to I'm going to hone in on this all these you know junior hires and high schoolers and their little dating relationships and i'm going to preach on this passage that it is good for a man not to touch a woman and he got up there in front of us all and he said touch don't touch touch don't touch and he said men it's not good for you to touch a woman all Right? that was the that was the thing but wow that's a really bad teaching of this passage there's context here. And so I've always wondered in my mind, now, was he purposefully manipulating and twisting this passage to mean something that it doesn't mean? Or was he just ignorant uh, and actually thought that's what it was teaching? Either way, that's really bad. And so I want to do my best to teach the context. So just give a little bit of clarity on this. What actually says is that they're actually, he's answering the questions that the Corinthian church is giving him. So he says, now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, that's the King James ESV says this, now for the matters you wrote about, quote, here's a question, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. That's the question. They had this agnostic view that the flesh was bad and all these things. And so they're saying, oh, man, we shouldn't have any kind of uh, sexual experience then at all. And that's just simply not what he's saying. Because if you read the very next verse, he says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. All right, this is about how, no, when I'm, when I'm in marriage, this is actually something we should be doing, not touch, don't touch. That's a really bad way to, to teach this. So we're looking at false teachers today, and this, this sermon in particular is titled, Grace Which Rescues. Grace Which Rescues. We've looked at this growing in grace in Peter, in 2 Peter. What is this grace that is growing? And we're gonna see particularly today that grace that rescues, but there's an opposite side of this. And the opposite side of that is that judgment day is coming. That there's an opposite. Yes, grace rescues, but there's also this justice of God that must be manifested in judgment. So speaking of context, let's go back. And let's look at where we've been, where we've come from until we get to this passage. We're in a new chapter now. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 10a. Uh, 10a just means the first half of 10. And so here we are. He says, in week one, there is this gift of faith that God has purchased, purchased us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he's given us faith and redeemed us. The second week Uh, Again, uh, Paul, who's officially an elder, and Josh is here as well, officially elders, which is awesome. Now I don't have to do anything. These guys just get to do everything, which is kind of fun. It's not true. Um, Paul preached and just said that God gives us everything we need, this grace upon grace upon grace in our life. And then the next week was then we work out our faith, that we add to our faith knowledge. And then it, it culminates in love, that people should know us and we should be characterized by our love for one another and then he says, I'm going to always remind you of these things. I'm going to preach these things to you over and over and over that we need the gospel. So that's the context. That's chapter one that we went through. And now we're jumping into, into chapter two. And he says this, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And he meant that then in the first century uh, in the area where he's at, in these greek states but he also this is also timeless this is true of today and we're going to look into what it exactly means by these false teachers and i I thought of another example i was thinking of prophets man what were the some of the false prophets and what were they saying and i was reminded of ezekiel the prophet ezekiel and and you might be familiar with this there's a there's actually a, a bread that's called ezekiel bread familiar with this ezekiel bread and right on the package what's that Ezekiel 4.9, right on the package, and it's, and it's printed on there. Here's what Ezekiel 4.9 says. It says, take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, put them in storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. That's what Ezekiel 4.9 says. The problem is even right on the package, there's an ellipses right after that. Dot, 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 because they don't finish the verse. Imagine that, right? Because if you read this in context, here's what it says. So take the wheat and the barley and beans, make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Does that mean I have to lay on my side for 390 days to eat the bread? I'm confused. Weigh out 20 shekels of food each day and eat it at these set times. Also measure out a sixth of hin of water. It's about eight ounces of water and drink it at set times. Then verse 12 says this, Eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. So Ezekiel bread, what is the ellipses for? Okay, like How are we actually cooking this bread? It's kind of confusing. So every time I'm in the store and I see Ezekiel bread, I always just start laughing because it's, <laughs> I think, I always think it's right there, man. He had to cook it over, over poop. Like, come on now. All right, that's, 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 I don't know. Again, is it, are the Ezekiel bread, do they, do they know that? Are they purposely trying to manipulate people into eating bread cooked that way? Pro- they probably don't cook it that way. It doesn't seem like that's a thing. All right, so let's look at this passage, though, now in 2 Peter. He says, But there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. But they're coming actually from inside of the church, right? And this is, this is why we do expository preaching. This is, this is what I mean, that we're going to walk through a passage. And we've always done this at Hope. I mean, there are some times where we will go, <clears throat> what we call maybe topical, where we'll address a specific topic, but we're going to be doing that after this series is over. But expository means that there are some hard sayings here. For me, as a pastor, I want to I check myself. Is this me? Is this passage describing me as a pastor? Is it describing you as the church? Are you just being spoon-fed like a baby? And you're just eating whatever it is that, that is regurgitated out off the pulpit? Uh, who are we listening to? Uh, whether it's podcasts or other pastors or other churches or, or books that we're reading. Who are we listening to? And this passage is going to walk through it, because I'm telling you right now, the false teachers that are popular, and maybe you're thinking of some, these false teachers, they're saying things, and what they're not saying, they're not talking about future judgment. And Peter here is going to explicitly, multiple times, talk about judgment day is coming, and he's even going to say that in the next chapter. They're going to laugh at, they're going to laugh at us for this. Because we've been saying this, the church has been saying this for 2,000 plus years. And, and even the Old Testament talked about a future judgment. Hey, where's, where is it? Where's the judgment? And so Peter's going to use his illustrations here. That happened in, uh, in Scripture, but in, in, in our life, not in our life, but happened uh, in this world. So he says this, There's going to be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Secretly, just subtly. I'm going to give a little bit of truth, but I'm going to to twist it ever so slightly. Uh, Even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Even denying that Jesus Christ is Lord. They're going to start to subtly say, well, Jesus isn't sovereign. He's not in control. I mean, look at the world around us and the chaos that is around us. If God was good, if he was loving, then God can't clearly be in control. Subtle heresies... Sound good, but they're wrong. And then they deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. That Jesus shed his blood for all people to be redeemed. And it says this, though, bringing swift destruction on themselves. What does swift here mean? Did it happen in their lifetime? Maybe. Right? I've, seen, I've seen in my lifetime multiple you know televangelists that have you know had some crazy thing that happened, usually some sexual immorality thing that happens, and they fall from grace, if you will. I've seen that happen, so maybe that's the swift. But swiftness here just means even in my life, that the atrocities that might happen in my life that I bear witness to, someday that judgment day is going to come, and it's going to seem swift in light of everything. It says many will follow their depraved conduct. And this is one where I'm like, Hey, I'm glad I got a small church. All right. I checked that one, not a false teacher. Cause I don't have them. The masses following me. Right. That's a good thing. Um, he says this though, their depraved conduct is actually going to be sexual. And I don't know what it is about any of these. When you think of a cult and I, and I'm not going to, I'm going to do my best not to name names or, or certain sects of religion or anything, but a lot of other religions, uh, uh, there's always this weird sexual kind of fantasy something happens that, that, oh, I can have multiple wives, or we can marry uh, younger people, or fill in the blank. And they take something from the Bible, or from what they're saying is from God, and manipulate people into believing that this is true. It says, they will bring the word of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you. <clears throat> and I think that's a major aspect of a false teacher, of a false teacher going and saying, hey, I, I need your money just plant a little uh, uh, you know a faith seed or I plant you know give ten dollars and God's gonna multiply that abundantly in your life that's garbage that's garbage and it says they're gonna exploit you with fabricated stories and a lot of times these teachers these preachers these false teachers they're gonna say I'm the only one that has this information I'm the only one that's privy to this knowledge of what's been given to me by God directly. And so if you want to be in the real church, you got to follow me. It's not what scripture teaches. It's not what these chapters are teaching. It's not what the Bible teaches. And then it says their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. And again, I could name names, but I'm not going to do that. Because what I want for, for my church, for the congregation, myself, is I want us to be able to, to dig into the scriptures and be able to see these things for ourselves. When we think about counterfeit, counterfeit, right? I'm not a, um, I'm, I may be more of a car guy. I can tell when there's been a kit, right, on a car, right? It's not actually a Lamborghini, it's a, it's a Honda Civic. It's got some weird plastic things on the outside. I can pick that out quite easily because I know what the real thing looks like, right? Whether it's shoes or purses, these knockoff things. We can do that because we know what the truth is. And if we look at the truth of the scripture and we know this, it's gonna be a whole lot easier to be deceived. And I'm so glad I'm not surrounded by a bunch of of yes men and yes women in our church. I love the fact that people can say, I don't agree with that. You said this thing this morning. I'm not really sure if that's sitting with me. Yes, that's good. That's good. All right. And again, why is there destruction not been, have not, has not been sleeping. Why? It's again, because they're denying the future judgment. He's going to get into this in the next chapter, but they're denying the future judgment. Oh, Peter, you idiot. You're a fool. There's not going to be any reconciliation. And they deny it. And when that happens, when we deny this aspect of a future judgment, one of two things is possible. One is we walk away with saying, well, I guess I can just do whatever I want then. I can do whatever I want. That's one way, which is what was exactly what was happening there, which is what happens with false teachers. We just do what we want. And I can manipulate people into giving me what I want. But the other thing, though, is what about all the suffering? I think if there's a time right now, the church needs to be uh, awoken to this aspect of future judgment is to say there's going to be a day when God is going to make everything right, that he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. He's going to say everything that's untrue will become false. That this is all going to be made right again. And that we need to focus on the righteousness of God and his future judgment. But knowing that there's a future judgment does not allow or permit complacency. It doesn't give room for that. I can't just sit idly by knowing that people are going to suffer. I don't want people to suffer in this life or the next. So what are these examples that Peter... Is going to give well. This is what he does. Peter does this uh, this thing, and I had to look this up the the actual name for this. But he's going to give three uh, protasis, protasis, and one apodosis. All right, more well known as an if-then clause. Okay, so he's going to give three ifs, if, 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 and then he's going to say then. He's going to give three examples of judgment that happened in the past. He's saying if this is true of this person in the past, of this people group in the past, then I'm telling you right now, this is also gonna be true in the future on judgment day. So the first one, he's, there's, a, there's a lot going on here, but he's specifically looking at Genesis 6, uh, 1 through uh, 4. Or 1 through, uh, yeah, 1 through 4. And he says this in, in this chapter, he says, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Okay, so that's the if. If God didn't spare the angels, and there's a lot of research that I had to do to get into this, but there's a lot of uh, Jewish culture that says that these angels that they committed in this passage in Genesis chapter 6, committed sexual sins. It says that the, the sons of God, and they would say in Jewish culture, would say those are the angels, had relationships with the daughters uh, of, of men. All right, and then it says there were giants in the land at this time and all these different things. Okay. It was well known that this was sexual, even within the Greek culture. This would have been the the Titans. This was very similar in that culture. And so there's something here that they they sinned sexually. All three of these ifs are going to be something to do with sexual sins. It says that when they sinned, but God sent them to hell. All right, And this isn't when we think hell, like, you know, fire and whatever, all that, okay, like eternal punishment. It's not actually the right interpretation of this word hell. What it is, is it's actually maybe a better to be un, the underworld or a gloomy dungeon. All right, so he, he puts them in chains of darkness in this gloomy dungeon to be held for future judgment. All right, there was a reckoning here for the angels because here's the thing. God did not spare the angels. I've said this multiple times from the pulpit. Jesus didn't come and take on angelic flesh and die for the angels so they can be redeemed. The fallen angels that are depicted in this story have no hope. They were judged then, thrown into a gloomy dungeon, and there's going to be a day where they're going to pay for it again, an ultimate judgment. So that's the first one. There's immediate justice, though, that we see with these angels, and then there's going to be a future and a final justice. So the next if, the second if, then says this in the next verse, chapter, verse five, it says, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. All right, so now he's going to the flood. So he said, if he didn't spare the angels when they sinned, and if he didn't spare the ancient world, which again, just gross immorality that was happening, that God looked down and it says that he was sorry that he ever had made human beings because we had just become so debased and wicked in our mindset. So if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on the ungodly people, but then he says, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, eight in all. So here's the second if, and here's a couple points that I wanna make from this. We see the universality of the judgment, that none of the ungodly will escape this. And again, this should motivate me. This should motivate me not to say, oh man, what what does it mean to be ungodly? What does it mean to be godly? Am I godly enough? No, it's only by the blood of Christ that I can be anything godly. And I want to share that message with as many people as I possibly can because I truly believe that there is a future judgment day coming. But then secondly, God preserved and protected Noah from that judgment. That he gives a way of escape, and the way of escape is through believing in his word. That God made a promise, but no one said, rain's going to come, I'm going to wipe out everybody. And this is a really, really hard story, which I'm going to get into in just a second. This is one of the, I think, one of the, the most difficult stories and passages in the Bible of a complete extermination of all people except eight. Right, but what Peter is saying here is that God is going to protect those who aren't enticed by the false prophets Right, at the final judgment. He's going to protect them. And I'm going to get into this, and Peter's going to explain this even more in a little bit. So just hold on. All right? This is a difficult passage. Because we see God's justice, his rightness, and his justice. And we're going to see that judgment day is coming. And obviously the masses in the story were... Destroyed, And this has always been difficult because I i mean, if you walk inside and you go down to the, the nursery that we used to use. Hey, it's Noah's Ark, all these animals, right? And, and it's beautiful. my nursery when I was a little kid at my church at the same, you know, big Noah's Ark panel on the wall and all these books. You know, it's like, oh, look at all the animals in the ark. I have yet to see millions of people drowning in the water on any of these paintings i've not seen that in the nursery and we try to make this as fun so oh, look how god saved all the animals there's mass destruction here that many people are destroyed but there's a few that are saved there's a few that are saved and it could have been and it should have been more if people just would have believed god at his word so again, we can look at this, Noah, he was a preacher of righteousness, God's right justice, that he was angry with the sins that were going on in the world and he was right for that. But then also it's the same righteousness, it's the same word that Peter gives us in 1.1 where he says, this is a gift. It's a gift of righteousness, of God's righteousness, because I can't do it on my own. Moving on, he's going to get now into his third. And again, these have all been sexual in a sense in nature. He says, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example for what is going to happen to the ungodly. All right, so this example, it's a type of what will again happen in the future. All right, Peter's not pulling his shots here. He's saying this happened, this happened, and this happened. And I'm telling you, this is going to happen. It's going to be a final thing though. No more second chances for human beings. If he condemned them, and made an example, right? It's a preview of what will ultimately happen to the false teachers and all those who follow. This will happen. But he says this in verse seven, but, and if he rescued Lot, so here we are again, where he's making another way of escape with righteousness. If he rescued Lot, a righteous man, that's a difficult phrase right there because if you know anything about Lot and you read his story, you wouldn't think he's a very righteous guy. He had a lot of issues. He wanted to go live in these cities that he knew were immoral. He wanted to uh, uh, live among the people. He chose that. just he saw how, how pretty the cities were. He saw the, the wealth that he could gain and acquire in these cities. We also know that after the story, after that he escapes uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and God's judgment on that, that he gets drunk and he sleeps with his daughters and it's inset- things get weird. I don't, wouldn't normally equate <clears throat> lot with righteousness. But here's here's the definition. Here's what Peter gives us as far as Lot being saved. He says he was a man who is distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawlessness for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Right? He was different from the rest. Was he perfect? No. Was he a hypocrite? Yep. Was he a false teacher? No. Because he believed the promises of God and God said, hey, I'm going to destroy this city. And he said, okay, I got to get out of here. He's different. That there was some kind of psychological toll tormenting his soul. Right? So we can equate righteousness when it comes to lot here is distress over those living in unrighteousness. And I think this would be us. I'm not perfect. I'm no saint. And yet, am I distressed over our society? Yes, the, the word of the day is antinomianism. It simply means there is no law. I can do whatever I want. And I think if there's anything that our culture would like to embrace right now, it's that. Total freedom. Do what I want. And if you don't agree with the fact that I can do whatever I want, then you're in the wrong. Complete lawlessness. But what Lot, what Noah, and what Peter is saying here from these three stories, that judgment is going to happen. But there's always that grace that God gives to rescue So now those are the three ifs. Now he's going to get to the then. If, 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 if the angels, if he didn't spare the ancient world, if he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, then this is so. If if this is so, then, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Right? We have these two aspects, rescue for the godly, Future judgment for the ungodly. It's very explicit here. But he says this, that we're going to be uh, rescued from trials. This is not some kind of internal struggle or trial or temptation against sin. This is an external, an external thing, uh, situations that could lead us into sin, being in situations that he's going to protect us from that. Douglas Moo, uh, in his commentary, says that a trial refers to all those challenges to faith that Christians experience in this world. What this doesn't mean is that everything's going to be rainbows and butterflies and sunshines, lollipops in. Is that we've been listening to a lot of oldies music recently, and so sorry, it just it popped in, and I just I couldn't help myself. It's not going to be that way, right? And yet, if I was a good false teacher, which I hope I'm not, I would be able to take this verse and say, "The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. If you would just follow after Jesus, He will make everything good, and you will be happy." And you'll be without struggle in this world. And that's simply not true. Again, look at the context. Read the whole chapter. It's a nice thing to put on a coffee mug. But we miss the fact that Noah and Lot didn't have it easy. They didn't have it easy. They were surrounded by ungodly people doing, un- who knows, unimaginable things to get them to get to, to, to leave their God and following after God. It wasn't easy. They were confronted by an evil majority it wasn't easy for them in those trials but eventually that judgment day is coming and things will be made right so in closing the gospel application how does believing in a future judgment affect you this could do this could be multiple things and I want to leave this pretty open because I really really want to pray that the spirit is going to move in all of us in some way maybe there's somebody that you would say man I, I just need to share the gospel with this person I don't want them to, to have to endure that judgment. I want them to see Jesus. Because why? If we finish this in verse 10, it says this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. This authority here is again Christ's sovereignty. He remember he says at the beginning that they reject even the sovereign Lord, they reject Jesus as sovereign. He's my authority. And this is where we just get to look at the beauty of the gospel and to rest in the fact that God is sovereign, he's in control, and he wants to rescue. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what God wants if we just would listen and turn to him. Because there is a judgment day coming for everybody. No one's privy to getting out of this. Only those who have been washed in the blood of Christ and Jesus has already taken on that judgment on himself so that we don't have to. That's it. I just have to believe that. But then how does believing in a future judgment affect you now? Are there justice things that we need to be doing now as a church? Yes, I think there are. And we're working towards that. Right? I want justice now in this life, but ultimately resting. the yes, there's a future judgment, but I don't want to just throw the white flag up and say, hey, future judgment's coming. I guess we can just sit around and sing kumbaya and not do anything about this. No! That's what Peter just spent all these time. Add to your faith, knowledge, and to your knowledge, love. How do I love? I love my neighbor as myself. We seek justice. That's what this passage does. And and again, this is why we preach expository messages. Because this is probably a passage I would probably want to skip. This is hard. Nobody likes talking about hellfire and brimstone. I don't want to be the angry, yelling pastor. But Peter talks about this. And this should be sobering. This shouldn't be angry. This shouldn't be... Hey, you better repent because you're going to suffer for all of eternity. But you need to repent because you might suffer for all of eternity if you don't have your faith in Christ. So how does believing in a future judgment affect you? Let me go ahead and and pray. And then we will enter into a time of communion and some uh, worship um, together. So let me go ahead and pray and uh, we will worship together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the beautiful weather. Uh, Thank you for my friends that are here today, that just being able to see them uh, warms my heart. Uh, Be with everyone who's uh, watching uh, online right now, that they would be comforted and and they'd be challenged. Are they ready for a future judgment? God, if not, you have said that today is the day of repentance. That Today can be the day that somebody can be a new follower of Christ. They can enter into your kingdom and follow Jesus as Lord and partake in this beautiful covenant that we have of the Lord's Supper. And remember what it is that Christ did for us that I don't have to fear a future judgment. I might go through really difficult times here right now on this earth, maybe and like first Peter says that because I'm a Christian, I will suffer. But I will know that there's a day coming where you're gonna make everything right. You're gonna wipe every tear from our eyes. And so God, now would you be honored and glorified as we sing, as we worship, as we partake of these elements together.